We just heard from Luke's gospel in chapter eight. Earlier in Luke's gospel in chapter four, Jesus casts out a demon and the response of the crowd is recorded for us by Luke in verse 36 of that chapter. The people are amazed. They're amazed and they say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. The authority and the power of Jesus. So my hope as we work through this passage in Luke chapter eight of another exorcism of Jesus casting out a demon, it's for us not just to be amazed by the authority and power of Jesus, but for us to submit to the authority of Jesus and for his power to be at work within you. And to do that, first, we need to acknowledge the reality of the spiritual world. We must acknowledge the reality of the spiritual world. C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, tells the story of Screwtape, who's a devil or a demon high in the ranks of the underworld. And he's writing a series of letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who's a junior devil, and he's instructing him on how to capture the soul of the human that he's assigned to, to secure the damnation of the human soul that he's assigned to. And in the introduction to that classic work, Lewis writes this, there are two equal and opposite errors we can make about the devils or the demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, the error that we've made in the modern Western world is the first one, the materialist error, disbelieving in the existence of demons and of the unseen spiritual world. And so when we encounter the Jesus of the gospel narratives, a Jesus who cast out demons, a Jesus who is engaged in a conflict with evil forces in an unseen spiritual world, we, we look at that and say, nah, we've got to explain that away. There must be some real, true, historical Jesus that lies behind those gospel narratives that we can access by other means. And so we strip away the supernatural from the gospel accounts. But if you strip away the supernatural, what do you have? You have Jesus as an inspirational figure. You have a great moral teacher. And then when you make that move, it's up to you to pick and choose which of his moral teaching you like and will follow and which you can take or leave. And so Jesus is no longer the authority. He's just an object for study, or as Lewis says, a distinguished character approved by a judicious historian. And this materialism, it's the air we breathe in the modern Western world. And so many readers will come to a passage like this and say, really, really, for all we know about the world now, for all that we've discovered about our world, as far as we've come, angels, demons, the supernatural, an unseen spiritual world, you can't believe that, can you? Now, it seems smart, it seems sophisticated to take that approach, but it's really just naive. Because if you're a materialist, on your own terms, you can't prove that there's not an immaterial world. If you're a naturalist, on your own terms, you can't prove that there's not a supernatural world. If you close your eyes to something, 
It doesn't necessarily mean that that something is not there just because you're not looking at it. It's naive. And Lewis says as much. He says, our materialism, our skepticism is exactly the devil's strategy to deceive us. Screwtape says to Wormwood, our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves and make them materialists and skeptics. The fact that devils or demons are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he cannot believe in you. It's an old textbook method of confusing them. So if we're confused in that way, Christian missionaries in the non-Western world often encounter the other confusion, the other error that Lewis mentioned, the world of pagan superstition, of magic. But what these missionaries find is that the Jesus of the gospel narratives is actually very compelling to these peoples because the Jesus of the gospel narratives is a Jesus who has authority over that world. It's a Jesus who has the ability and the power to rescue them from evil spirits and from their influence. And so I ask you this morning, is the Jesus of the gospel narratives compelling to you? Is he compelling to you? Because if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a materialist, I'm not a skeptic, I, I believe in, in the spiritual world, that may be true, but, but this materialism, this skepticism, it's the air we breathe. And even if we believe in it, we can't help but be affected by it. And so even if we believe in this unseen spiritual world, in this world of angels and demons or the supernatural, so often it's a world that's, that's just far removed from us, isn't it? It's a world that, that doesn't touch us on a daily basis. It's a, it's a world that doesn't affect me in any way. It doesn't influence me. It doesn't change my decisions or my, my daily life. We don't think about it that often. But to the degree that this is true, then the Jesus of the gospel narratives is not going to be compelling to us because this Jesus is a Jesus who is engaged in a conflict with that world and who has authority and power to rescue us from its influence. And so Jesus so often becomes an authority for us, but he's an authority we can kind of keep at arm's length. Right before this miracle, this casting out of a demon, Jesus' disciples are with him on a boat on the lake, and a storm comes down on them, and the storm is so severe that the disciples are fearful for their lives. The boat is sinking, and they're afraid they're going to sink with it. And they cry out to Jesus for help. And Jesus, with just one word, with just a word, calms the storm. And the wind and the waves cease. And Luke, again, records the response of the disciples. They're amazed. And they say this. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Who is this? that even the winds and the water obey him. And then that, answer, that question is answered in this passage by the demon-possessed man in verse 28. Who is this? Jesus. Distinguished figure? Object of our study? No, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. This is a Jesus who commands the winds and the waves. He commands the powers of darkness. And so I just ask you this morning, who do you say he is? 
Is, is Jesus an object for your personal study? Is he a distinguished character worthy of your approval? Or do you see Jesus as he is, as the son of the most high God, as the one who commands the powers of darkness, who commands the winds and the waves? And why do we not want to see him that way? Why do we want to keep him at arm's length? Because if Jesus has authority over those things, then surely he has authority over you and your life. If he has authority over the wind and the waves, then he's got authority to tell you how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you use your words, how you use your body. Jesus is the son of the most high God. If you want a real relationship with the real, true, historical Jesus, then you can't just, as one person has put it, scoop off some blessing off the top of Scripture. No, you get the real thing. You get the son of the most high God, and that changes everything. Who do you say he is? We've got to acknowledge the reality of the spiritual world and Jesus' authority over it. Now, the demons knew the reality of the spiritual world. They recognized the authority of Jesus, and yet they fell down in terror. If we're going to joyfully, willingly submit to the authority of Jesus and fall down at his feet in worship, then we've also got to acknowledge the reality of our spiritual condition. We've got to acknowledge the reality of our spiritual condition. There are also two equal and opposite errors that we make when it comes to the reality of our spiritual condition. There's the materialist error where all of our problems are physiological. All of our problems are bodily problems. That's the error we've made in the modern Western world. Not to say that we don't have bodily problems or those things don't affect us spiritually. The Bible's clear about that. But we've made everything into a body problem. Everything's physiological. So what have we done? If you have a problem, we've got... Dr. Seuss's pillberry bush. You just take a pill, and that's it. That's what we've done. But then you have an equal and opposite error where you give undue influence to the spiritual world and, and demons. And you all probably know that classic phrase the devil made me do it. But the Bible is thankfully more sophisticated than that and gives us a more realistic picture. The Bible shows us that we are in bondage to evil, and yet we willingly choose evil. We are in bondage to evil, and yet we freely choose evil. And so in this passage, we learn something about our spiritual condition. We see somebody who's in bondage to evil, and it's reached a very dramatic intensity, of course, in this passage. In the demon-possessed man, the influence of evil on him is, is so dramatic and we find out later in the passage he's, he's uh, possessed not just by one demon, but by a legion. A legion was around 6,000 Roman soldiers. And so his point is, I've got an army in me. And so the bondage to evil, it, it takes a dramatic form in the life of this man. But just because it may be less dramatic for us than it was for this man makes it all the more devastating because we don't realize that we're in bondage to evil. We think that we're free and yet we're slaves. 
We're deceived into thinking that we're free, and yet we're slaves to evil. How does this work? Well, Lewis, he shows us in, in his work, it's brilliant, he shows us that, that the demons, they don't create evil, for only God can create, and God has created good, but, but evil distorts the good. It twists the good. And so we're deceived. All the while, we're thinking that we're pursuing the good, when in reality, we're enslaved in bondage to evil. And Lewis gives a number of examples so for, think about romantic love, the beauty of romantic love. That's a good thing that God has given us, that God has created. But with the help of our romantic comedies, that good can so easily be twisted, easily be, be distorted into being in love is the only thing and the only basis for a relationship. So once the butterflies fly away, you can end the relationship. The beauty of romantic love has been twisted and distorted into something evil, and we don't even realize it. We're deceived. Something as simple as the pleasantness of change. We have the changing of seasons, night and day, these rhythms of life that are pleasant to us and that we enjoy. The pleasantness of change. That's a good thing that God has given us. What evil does is distort and twist that into a healthy desire. A healthy desire for change becomes a demand for novelty. I got out the latest and greatest. Got out the newest model. Latest fashions. The healthy enjoyment of pleasures can so easily be twisted or distorted into overindulging in pleasures or into the arrogance of, of having to know the best people or eat the right foods or read the important books, as Lewis says. And what's so devastating about this dynamic is that there are plenty of religious versions, too, where we think we're pursuing the good. We think we're pursuing God. We're pursuing the Bible. And yet that even has been twisted and distorted into evil, and we don't even realize it. We're deceived. So something as good and important as the regular worship and fellowship of God's people can so easily be twisted and distorted into just going through the motions. The external habits of religion without your heart actually being affected or changed. You don't even realize it. Or something good like recognizing that Christianity does have social and political implications. Absolutely it does. But we see probably more than ever how that is so easily twisted and distorted into Christianity is just a means to achieve social or political ends and goals. This can happen with anything. Emotion is good. It's easily twisted into sentimentality. Humility, so easily twisted into self-pity. Confidence, so easily twisted into pride. And on and on and on it goes, and we're deceived. We don't even realize it's happening. We're in bondage to evil. And it's not only devastating, we see its effects in this passage as well. It's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. We see the man in this passage, and, and the level of influence of evil has reached such a dramatic intensity that we see this dramatic dehumanization of the man. Look at, look at what's happened to him. He's naked. He's insane. He's homeless. And most of all, he's isolated. He's cut off from his community. 
And that's who we were made to be. We were made for community, community with God, community with one another, and this man's been cut off from all of that. Just give you a few examples. The dehumanization that happens. What does pride do in a marriage? What does pride do in a marriage? So your spouse, everything he or she says or does, you interpret in the worst possible light and you impute the worst possible motives. But then what do you expect from her? That she takes everything you say at face value and puts the best spin on things. And so all of a sudden, when this keeps up, before you even know it, the two of you are barely speaking. And you're just going through the motions of a loveless marriage. And you don't even realize what happened. You're barely even speaking. What's happened? You're cut off from one another. You're isolated. What does self-pity do to friendships? Well, if you're so depressed about not having friends, nobody wants to be your friend. You've cut yourself off from people. You're isolated. Going back to romantic love, sexuality. So what we've done is, is men, we evaluate women almost exclusively on their looks, on their outward appearance. We make women into objects. And so in turn, women tend to do what? To attach their importance and their worth almost exclusively on their outward appearance. And the two feed off of one another, and before you know it, we've isolated. We're isolated from one another. We're cut off from one another. And so you have men treating women as objects and addicted to pornography, cut off, isolated. Think about Christianity as a means to a political or social end. What has this done? On the right and the left, take your pick, wherever you are on the spectrum. Can't even have a conversation about anything anymore. We vilify those who disagree with us. We demonize them. We impute the worst possible motives to them. We lump everybody in the same categories, and we're cut off from one another. We're isolated. We can't even have a conversation about issues anymore. We're in bondage to evil. We've got a problem. It's devastating, and it's dehumanizing. It cuts us off from one another. It isolates us. This is the reality of our spiritual condition, and it's, it's, we're deceived. It's so subtle, we don't even realize it's happening. We've got to acknowledge it. We've got to acknowledge the reality of our spiritual condition. We're in bondage to evil. But when we do that, if we're willing to acknowledge it, then we can experience the power of Jesus to rescue and deliver us from evil. So let's look from this passage at the healing of Jesus. So Jesus heals this man. He casts out the demons into this herd of pigs. And almost everybody reading this passage, I know I, I do it, you're reading through and you're like, what's the deal with the pigs? Why? Why would Jesus cast demons out into the pigs? What is he doing? And, and, and what did those farmers ever do to Jesus that all their pigs drowned? I mean, come on. 
What's the deal? Well, just two quick thoughts as a side note. Notice that, first of all, the demons asked to be sent into the pigs, and Jesus gave permission. Jesus did not actively send them into the pigs. And the demons caused the pigs to drown. And then secondly, don't you think freeing them from the terror of this man was more important than a few thousand pigs? Probably so. But in any case, the passage doesn't want us to focus on what's the deal with the pigs. The passage wants us to focus on Jesus' power to heal, Jesus' power to radically transform this man and restore his humanity. Look at the change that takes place in this man's life. When we first encounter him in the passage, he's confronting Jesus head on. He's challenging his authority. And then, verse 35, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's receiving instruction. He's learning from him. The man goes from nakedness to clothed, from madness to in his right mind, from isolation, from homelessness, from wandering in the desert, from the tombs to life in his home, in his community. The radical transformation that's taken place in verse 36, Luke tells us that the man is healed. And that's an important word. The word there for healed is the word for rescued, for delivered, for saved. And so what we see here is not just a physical healing, we see a complete transformation. The man is rescued not just from his physical affliction, but from the evil that has afflicted him. It's a complete healing. It's a healing of the whole person. And Luke is showing us with the use of this word that, that Jesus' power is not just for the benefit of this one man, but it's for our benefit as well. He wants us to experience the power and the healing of Jesus, that we might be healed in our whole person, that we might have a radical, complete transformation. Jesus' earthly miracles in his early ministry, they're never just bare displays of power. Jesus is not going around to people saying, hey, look what I can do. Casting out demons, heal some lepers, raise the dead. Pretty powerful. I'm in charge. No, Jesus' miracles had a purpose to them. Jesus' miracles are always pointing forward to what he would accomplish at the end of his earthly ministry. In this passage, we see that here Jesus is confronted by one man. But later on, Jesus is going to be confronted not by one man, but by a crowd gathered against him. He's going to be confronted by the religious leaders who sought to arrest him. He's going to be confronted by Judas who sought to betray him. And in that moment, when Jesus is in the garden and this whole crowd gathers around him, and the religious leaders are conspiring against him, and Judas is about to betray him with a kiss, Jesus looks at that crowd, and just as he knew in this passage the spiritual reality that lied behind that man who was possessed, he looks at that crowd, and he knows the reality of the spiritual world and the conflict that's taking place. Verse 53 of chapter 22, Jesus looks at this crowd, and he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The power of darkness. He knew that it wasn't just a legion gathered against him. It was the whole host of evil. 
It was all of the spiritual forces of evil, all of the powers of darkness were gathered against him in that moment as he was preparing to go to the cross. And in that moment, he's still the son of the most high God, is he not? He commanded the winds and the waves. He, he had him cease with just a word. With one word, he cast out this legion from the man. In that moment, when the whole host of evil is gathered against him, he's still the son of the Most High God. He is in charge. With one word, that whole host could have melted away. But he stayed silent. Jesus cast out the demons that had seized this man. Verse 54, Luke tells us that Jesus in this moment, same word, allows himself to be seized. He allows himself to be bound and to be led away and to go to the cross. And Luke, in his description of the crucifixion, he takes special care to emphasize that Jesus could have saved himself if he wanted to. Three times, back to back, the rulers are mocking him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. The soldiers mock him, saying, if you are the king of Jews, save yourself. The criminal that was hanging beside Jesus on, the, on a cross beside him said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Luke is saying, Jesus, if he had wanted to, could have saved himself. But he stayed put so that we could be saved. And on the cross, Jesus was devastated so that we could be healed. He was dehumanized. The prophet Isaiah tells us he was marred beyond all recognition. Why did he do that? So that you could be restored to who you were made to be, to true humanity, to, to be joined into the community, to have life in fellowship with others. Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. He was cut off from his people so that we could be restored. He allowed himself to be bound by the powers of darkness and death. That was their hour, but Jesus knew it would be their very undoing. On the cross, Jesus triumphs over the powers of sin and death and darkness because there he frees us from its influence on us. He rescues us from bondage to evil, from death and from the fear of it. And Jesus was laid in the tomb so that one day we could be raised to life with him. And even though we have the problems in the body now and we have death awaiting us, we know that one day we are going to be healed in the whole person, body and soul, in a new heaven and a new earth. And so that now we could, like this man, sit at his feet to learn from him, to willingly submit to his authority in the word, in worship, in fellowship with one another, and so that we could declare his goodness to others. If you've experienced the healing of Jesus, if you've experienced this radical transformation, this complete change, then you're called to declare the goodness of Jesus to others. In verse 34, we see that um, the pig farmers, when this happens, naturally they go and they, they tell everyone, this is not your average day in the life of a first century Palestinian pig farmer. They've never seen something like this before. So they go and they tell everybody. And so everybody comes to check it out. And in verse 37, we're told that the people, when they see what's happened, they're seized with great fear. They're still in bondage. And so they ask Jesus to leave, and he does. But notice, Jesus leaves this region, this Gentile region, 
but he doesn't go without leaving his presence there. Because we see that before Jesus goes, the man who's been healed asks to go with him. And so again, you see the complete transformation. When we first encountered him, he was begging Jesus to leave him alone. You might be saying that this morning. You say, just leave me alone. (laughs) Stop preaching this. I don't want to hear it. But then Jesus comes in his life, and now he's begging to go with him. Take me with you. But Jesus has another mission. He has another plan for this man. Jesus is going to leave, but he doesn't leave without leaving his presence there. He tells the man, no, stay. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And the man does. He obeys. He proclaims throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And Jesus calls you to do the same. He calls you to do the same, to declare his goodness to others. He calls some of us to go and to do that. But most of us, he calls to stay home and do that, just like this man. And so I ask you, in your home, in your family, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and with your friends, if you've experienced the healing power of Jesus, if you have submitted to his authority in your life, are you declaring his goodness to others around you? Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the reality of the spiritual world and Jesus' authority over it. I pray that you would let us experience the healing power of Jesus in our lives, that we might have a complete transformation. It gets worked out little by little, but Lord, there is a change. Do it in us, we pray. And then having experienced it, would we be those who declare his goodness to others? Open our lips that we might do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.